Tonight, I'd like to talk about happiness, what it is and how we get it. There are lots of different kinds of happiness. And we get those different kinds in different ways. It's helpful to have an understanding of the general laws or or principles governing the arising of happiness so that if, in fact, that's what we want to experience in our lives, we know the correct way going about it. What's the first kind of happiness that most people are familiar with? Generally, it's the happiness of the sense pleasures. That is, beautiful sights and sounds and smells and delicious tastes, nice tingly sensations in the body, and pleasant thoughts and emotions the mind considered as a sixth sense. And although it's true that the happiness we derive from sense pleasures is impermanent and fleeting, still we have the experience that in the moment of those pleasures, it brings about a certain kind of joy, a certain kind of lightness in our lives. We like them. The Buddha talked of another kind of sense pleasure, which is described in the Buddhist cosmology. That is the sense pleasures of the higher realms. That is, in the Buddhist cosmology, there are 31 planes of existence, and beings in the cycle of rebirth, according to their karma, are born on any one of these planes. And the human plane is the first, the first of the happy realms. There are like 26 or 27 happier ones. (laughs) Not only the Buddha, actually there are people in the Buddhist time and today too, who have the ability through the development of deep power of mind to actually experience these different realms of existence. Manindraji, my teacher, used to speak very often of the delights of the heavenly realms, especially the ones just above the human realm, that is the heavens of the sense delights, told of how beings there are born spontaneously, that is, not through a process of going through the womb, but rather, according to karma, simply appear in these realms with bodies of light, not these gross physical bodies that have pains and aches. Shimmering bodies of light born at age 15, 16, that's how they appear, all ready to sport (laughs) in the pleasure groves. And everything is beautiful. It was a few years ago, we had a wonderful woman teacher here. Uh, Many of you have met her, Deepama, 
who in her training developed high stages of enlightenment through Vipassana and also all the levels of samadhi practice, the different psychic powers. And occasionally, not very often, she would talk about some of these things. She was here during the fall and we were sitting with her out by the lake and it was totally exquisite. You know, all the leaves were turning and the colors were reflected in the water. Beautiful sunny day. We asked her whether that was as beautiful as the celestial realms. And mostly she was very soft-spoken and quiet. And but in that moment, just asking her you know, whether that was as beautiful a scene as one could experience in the heavenly realms, in that moment she became very animated and said, Nah! <laughs> Not even close. (laughs) If you could just think of the total refinement, total refinement of the body, so that the energy becomes an energy of light, total refinement of all the senses. There are realms of celestial musicians, beings who just delight in the realm of music. There are realms of celestial intellectuals, (laughs) (laughs) beings who delight in the pleasures of concept. And there's even some Dharma being taught up there. It's said that Maitreya, that is the Bodhisattva who will be the next Buddha some future time, is living in one of these realms now and teaching the Dharma. Manindra loved talking about all this and I loved hearing about it and it made my mind really light and happy. Just contemplating the possibilities. (laughs) But he would always end his, his talks about it by saying, especially in his talks to Westerners, that you don't have to believe it because it's not part necessarily of the experience of the development of wisdom or enlightenment or Vipassana practice. So it's not really at all necessary to believe it. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. (laughs) And that's how he would end his little discourse. Whether we consider the sense pleasures that we know and are familiar with, or we contemplate the possibility of more refined sense pleasures and the kind of happiness they bring to us, the question then is, what is the cause of them? Why is it that for some people they arise in their lives and other people actually lead lives of great deprivation. It's not by accident. The the world, our lives are unfolding according to certain laws, certain principles. When we understand them, we can align ourselves with a sense of purpose. What is it that we want? When we understand what we want, we can go in that direction. 
with a clarity of vision. So what is it that brings sense pleasure? The Buddha talked of a kind of purification that is the cause of happiness through the senses. He called it purity of conduct. That is purity of action. The karmic result of that kind of purification, the result is the experience of sense happiness, whether in this realm or in the heavenly realms. What does purity of conduct mean? means in a fundamental way coming into a true relationship with ourselves, with other people, with the world. A true relationship. One aspect of this true relationship is the cultivation or the expression or manifestation of generosity. Generosity means non-grasping, non-clinging, non-greed. And this comes automatically. Generosity develops automatically as we come into a true relationship with the experience of change. As we become more deeply and profoundly aware that there is nothing to hold on to, that all experience is constantly changing and transforming and in flux, where we see with our being rather than with our concepts, and we really understand deeply, experience deeply this process of change, from that understanding, from that insight, generosity is automatically born and expressed. So we see that there's nothing to grasp, nothing to hold on to. Therefore, in the opportunity arises, giving takes place. (coughs) We can also practice it the other way. And that is, even if we don't have that very deep experience of change, sort of going in that direction, but still developing that insight, by the, by the conscious practice of generosity, that is, by giving, we begin to experience the kind of happiness and lightness of mind that comes from that. possible to actually sculpt our lives. You know, for so, for so much time, we spend our lives simply playing out the old habit patterns of conditioning, and we don't take that creative stance, that is, that sense of creating our lives in each moment. Rather, we are simply playing out the patterns. To come to the understanding that each moment 
of experience provides us with an opportunity to be creative with who we are, the direction that we're going, and that it's possible to play, to experiment, to investigate how the quality of our actions, of our conduct, affects the quality of our lives. So generosity or giving can actually be played with and practiced. One of the things we find from it is that not only does it create a sense of joy in the moment, we feel good in giving, it also is the karmic seed of happiness in the future. It's one of the things that causes sense happiness to come back to us. One other aspect of purity of conduct, besides generosity, has to do with basic understanding of virtue or morality. Putting ourselves into a true relationship with other people, with the environment. Not killing, not stealing, not lying, not committing sexual misconduct, not taking things which cloud the mind or cause paranoia or fear in the mind, which contract the mind. What's important to understand is that morality or virtue in this sense is not a set of commandments. It's not, thou shalt not do this and thou shalt do that. Rather, it's guidelines for taking a look and exploring how our actions affect our minds. What happens when we're in conflict with the world, when we're in conflict with people? What does that feel like? What happens in our experience when we're in harmony with other people, with ourselves? In the very traditional teachings of the Buddha, morality is the foundation of concentration, and concentration is the foundation of wisdom. You can see that when the mind is in turmoil, when there's that sense of conflict, when there's a sense of remorse, very difficult to concentrate the mind. The mind becomes consumed. The power of virtue is a steadfastness and an ease and a well-being of mind. The danger in Western cultures when we speak about this, is people often hear the term virtue or morality as somehow connoting moralistic and self-righteousness, which has been a danger in our culture in the past. But that has nothing to do with true virtue. Virtue is harmony. We again can practice it from two sides. We can actually practice through some guidelines putting ourselves in harmony with other people, with the environment. 
And also this harmony is born out of the insight of selflessness. When we come to a deeper understanding that there is no one behind this flow of passing experience, who is there then to be aggressive, to be greedy? Where, where is the motive for aggression or grasping? So from our insight, those motives fall away. When we're in harmony with ourselves, we actually give a wonderful gift to everybody we meet, everybody we're in contact with, and that is the gift of trust. Because we're making a statement with our lives, with how we are, we're making a statement with our actions, that people can trust us, that they need not be afraid of us, that we're going to be straight, that we're going to be honest. But there's a stance of non-harming. Just imagine what this planet would be like if every being on it followed the five precepts. So simple. Not a complicated, not a complicated task or endeavor. Think of how incredibly transforming that would be. They're very powerful. You know, we we can think of we can think of this kind of development of virtue or morality as being somewhat superficial and the real work has to do when you sit on your zafu and you watch your breath. But actually the power of that kind of harmonious living and mind state goes very deep. It's tremendously potent in its effect. Effect on our own minds, effect on the world. So it's to consider them deeply not a superficial question. So both of these, the development of generosity and the true understanding of what virtue means, of non-harming, non-harming ourselves, non-harming other beings, both of those, the purity of conduct, they bring a happiness in themselves and they're also a cause of these different levels of sense happiness, the human realms, the celestial realms. There's an interesting sidelight sort of the, the Burmese uh, understanding and vision of these different realms. It seems that there are a lot more women up there than men. Somebody asked why that's so. And at least in Asian cultures, I'm not exactly sure what's (coughs) happening here. (laughs) The women seem actually to cultivate that sense of morality and generosity more. And so there's a preponderance of them in the different celestial worlds. Okay, that's one kind of happiness, the happiness of the sense pleasures. 
Second kind of happiness that we can experience is the happiness of a concentrated mind. Perhaps by now you've gotten even some short tastes of what it's like when the mind gets quiet. When it just gets concentrated, whether it's on the breath or a sensation, and it's not agitated, it's not restless. There's a sense of unification, a sense of stillness, a sense of strength, a sense of well-being, a sense of power, a sense of stillness, silence. When we experience that level of concentration, happiness, there's a tremendous, tremendous joy that comes from that, which is much greater than the happiness of the sense pleasures, which is why yogis, whether it's people on retreat or people in monasteries or just in their lives, who cultivate this deeply concentrated mind, there's no longer that much interest in seeking out sense pleasures because they're abiding in a more complete sense of wholeness, of fulfillment. And it's through the power of this concentration that there are certain mind states which become extremely efficacious. Those are the mind states which are called the divine abodes. That is, of loving-kindness, compassion, of joy in the happiness of others, spiritual joy, and equanimity. You know, now when we do metta, loving-kindness, we try directing our thoughts of love, our feelings. We can sort of work up some amount of feeling and caring. But often the mind is wandering, you know, in between, may all beings be happy, What's for lunch? May all beings be happy. (laughs) And it's sort of sending it out, but the energy of it is a bit dispersed. Just imagine the power of loving kindness when it's being generated by a totally concentrated mind. Tremendous force, tremendous power there. There are many stories of different people, and the Buddha in particular, the potency of his loving-kindness. There's one story in particular. In his time, he had a cousin who was also a monk and who is the bad guy in all the sutras. He was full of greed and full of ambition, and he had developed certain powers through the development of samadhi, of concentration, and was totally misusing these powers for self-aggrandizement. And for many years he kept plotting ways to kill the Buddha so he could take over the order of monks and nuns. And he had this one plan in this town where they were all staying. There was this um, huge wild elephant you know, in the king's elephant stables. This monk bribed the elephant keeper to goad this elephant, as the Buddha was walking up this narrow lane, to goad this mad elephant uh, down the lane so that he would trample the Buddha. And he thought either the Buddha will be trampled and killed, or he'll run away and be disgraced. And so the Buddha is walking up the lane, 
collecting the alms foods. I don't know how many of you have recently seen elephants. They're big. (laughs) They're real big. And this was a mad one, a real angry one. And the elephant keeper goaded this elephant until it started running down this lane. And the Buddha's walking up, very mindfully lifting, moving, (laughs) placing. Maybe he didn't need the notes. The elephant is, is, you know, running down on him. Just as the elephant begins to get close, the Buddha starts suffusing the mind of the element of the elephant with thoughts of love. And because of the power of his mind, the force generated of love and kindness and compassion towards the mind of this elephant said that as the elephant got close, it slowed down, started walking very slowly, and as it got in front of the Buddha, it knelt in reverence. Whether this is a true story or an apocryphal one, I don't know, but it points to a very real power. Now think of people that we know or people in our times who generate that kind of love. Mother Teresa comes to mind, somebody who is so filled with love and compassion that their lives have such an extraordinary effect on everyone around them. It comes from the force of a concentrated mind, a mind that's not distracted. That's what we're developing. It takes time and it takes practice, but slowly the mind gets collected. And as it gets collected, it can be used in this way. But a caution is also necessary because it's possible to develop some degree of stillness and concentration and develop some love and kindness and then to use it manipulatively to kind of get what we want. I had one experience of that. I was visiting some friends in Western Mass. I was walking along this they live out in the woods, walking along this dirt road. About a half a mile down the road was another house with some dogs. And they, were, they were pretty little dogs, but quite agitated and aggressive. And I'm walking along, and they really start growling and barking. And I thought, I'll just stand here and send some metta. You know, so I'm standing, and they're getting really upset, these dogs. And I'm saying, be happy, be happy, be happy, be peaceful, be peaceful. And one of the dogs came up and bit me. (laughs) It was a great lesson in the fact that manipulative metta doesn't work. So just be watchful. (laughs) Metta, in order for something to happen, is not genuine metta. And real loving kindness has to come from that real fullness of being and caring. So there's a kind of happiness that comes from concentration. So the happiness of the concentrated state itself 
It's the happiness of the loving kindness and the compassion and joy and equanimity when they're developed to this high extent. There's another kind of happiness which is higher even than the happiness of concentration. And that's the happiness of insight, the happiness of wisdom. When we really come to a deep and profound understanding of who we are, of what this life is about. Insight or wisdom unfolds in a very ordered way. It's not some haphazard process. It follows its own laws. When we begin to apply a certain level of concentration to the examination and investigation of ourselves, we go through a certain mandala of insight. The mandala is a circle or a path or a wholeness. And the first level of insight that we come to, and some which I'm sure many of you have experienced already, is the level of psychological insight. That is, as we sit and walk and pay attention to our experience and to our minds, the first thing that hits us is the experience of ourselves on the personality level. We find out, to some extent, who we are as personalities. We see all the different sides. The loving side and the greedy side and the judging side and the angry side the peaceful side, we begin to see patterns, and we begin to see the ways we relate to people. We begin to see self-images and how we sustain the self-images. And it's useful. And it's interesting. And it's also just the very beginning. You have to be careful that you don't get stuck in that level of insight. And it's very tempting and seductive because it's so interesting. You know, when you get a real clear sense through your own investigation of actually these patterns of mind and how they're working and how they've controlled our lives, you get really fascinated in exploring that and going through all those patterns. It can be a trap. Not that it's not interesting and not valid, but it's just the very tip of where this journey is going. And so it's important to see that and to understand that and to keep coming back to the basic practice of mindfulness, of noticing the process, so that we don't stop at that level. The level of insight which goes beyond this personality understanding, the psychological understanding, is a level of purification which is called purity of view. And this is a big turning point in one's practice and in one's life. It's really a major step, a major deepening. Purity of view has to do with the understanding that what we are is the process, is a process of knowing an object arising and passing away. 
That is, what we are is a sequence of knowing a sight, knowing the object, consciousness and object, arising, passing, knowing a sound, knowing a smell, knowing a taste, a touch, a thought. That in each moment, this pair, consciousness and object, knowing an object, appears and disappears. The Buddha gave a discourse in which he he called it the all. I think Agasara mentioned it in one of his early talks. In six phrases, the Buddha described the totality of our experience. Six phrases. The eye and visible objects, the ear and audible ones, the nose and smell, the tongue and taste, the body and sensations, the mind and mind objects. What we are is this sequence of knowing an object arising and passing away. How do we come to that level of understanding? By paying attention in each moment to our experience of that moment. And what will we find? That in each moment, this is what's happening. There's a sight and a knowing of a sight, a sensation and a knowing of a sensation, sound and knowing of a sound. Through a careful attention, a close attention to our experience as it's unfolding, this insight becomes more and more clear. It's like as we settle back into ourselves, rather than having our minds going outward, we begin to discover this basic understanding. And what's so profound about this particular insight is that it's the first real taste of selflessness. When we see that what we are is this process of consciousness and object arising and passing away each moment, begin to see that there's no one to whom it refers. It's not as if experience refers back to someone. Rather, what there is, is this arising and passing, the knowing and the object, purity of view. It's the beginning of a tremendous sense of opening in our minds and our lives. We go from that, we go from this purity of view to another phase or stage of practice, which is one of the happiest times in people's practice and development, It's called the stage of Vipassana happiness. It's the stage of experiencing things arising and passing away very clearly. Not on a a gross way, but very subtle, moment to moment, microscopic. The mind becomes so tuned to things appearing and disappearing, appearing and disappearing. It gets into the rhythm of that, so the mindfulness becomes effortless. So there's not that efforting to be aware, to pay attention, but rather the mind has settled into the rhythmic, effortless being of the process. It's no longer somebody standing outside watching it. We become this process of arising and passing away. 
And at this particular time in our practice, a lot of very wonderful things happen. The mind and body become filled with light, tremendous light, tremendous rapture, deep calm, deep equanimity, effortless concentration and awareness. It's all happening. The mind, the consciousness at this time becomes luminous. It's like if you take a piece of crystal and you polish it, and the luminosity of that glass, the mind actually becomes that luminous. But there's a danger. Because this happiness that we experience at that time is so extraordinary and far, far superior and more complete, more fulfilling than the happiness even of concentration or the sense pleasures. What happens is that the mind gets attached to it. And from being a deepening stage of insight, all of these factors of calm and concentration and equanimity and rapture become what are called the corruptions of insight. All the factors of enlightenment. And we've worked so hard and you've put in so much time and struggled so long and you finally settle back and experience this kind of real happiness and bliss. And then you come in for an interview and one of us will say, oh, it's just the corruptions of insight. Because it's necessary not to push it away but not to get attached. Because there's more. There's a deepening sense. What happens as we become mindful of these states rather than attached to them, it's like this mandala of insight. We start looking at things from another perspective, another vision. And that is we begin to see the dissolution of everything. The mind tunes into that aspect of things which is constantly dissolving. Sensations, thoughts, feelings, sounds, the breath, The mind is tuning into the ending of things. No longer the arising and passing away equally balanced, but it's just seeing the ending. And it's seeing it so quickly that all that's apparent in our experience is dissolution. Dissolution of everything. Dissolution of our minds, dissolution of our bodies, of the world. No place to take a stand at all. The rug gets pulled out. Impermanence takes on a whole different meaning from this perspective of dissolution. So you see that there is not the slightest possibility of holding on. Consciousness itself is seen as dissolving. What happens when people go through this? Stages of insight, this mandala of insight continues to unfold and people go through a stage of fear. Tremendous fear. Fear of the process of existence. Because we've, we've experienced, not thought about, not intellectually, we've experienced that our very existence, what we've taken to be so solid and so real, and holding on to for security, our very being is an instantaneously dissolving process. It's like everything is falling apart. Very hard to sit at that time. 
And in the stage of happiness and bliss, people sit for hours and hours and hours, and it's wonderful. And at this stage of dissolution, people sit for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and just get disgusted. Don't like to see it. Don't like to be with it. We go through stages of fear and misery and disgust with the whole thing. We don't want any part of it. There's no escape. Because it's the understanding that that's what we are. So these stages of insight are called rolling up the mat stage. Because all that people want to do is roll up their mat and leave. But usually people don't because wherever they go they're experiencing it. They see that there's no getting away. Just as an aside in this, this little journey of insight, this sequence should indicate to you that it's impossible for you to be a judge of your practice. Because generally people have the model of the idea, oh, when things become clear and nice and the body's light and the concentration's good and everything's blissful, good practice. And then they feel good and they're accomplishing something. And times when there are a lot of difficulties, for example, in this stage, you think, oh, the practice has fallen apart. And actually that stage is a deeper place. It's a deeper place of wisdom. So it's to really surrender in your practice to what's happening. Let it unfold as it does. Because you can't be a judge of how it's going. It's not that good practice always means that you're in a nice, comfortable state, because sometimes deep practice means just the opposite. Sometimes it's exceedingly painful and fearful, and actually you're going deeper. Okay, so what happens? We're in this stage, I don't want to leave you there, <laughs> the stage of fear and misery and disgust, and all you want to do is split. You really, at that time, are experiencing, again, not intellectually, this at this point, it's very real, the dukkha of existence, the suffering inherent in existence. And out of that, out of that experience, out of that opening to the dukkha, to the suffering, comes what's called an urge for deliverance. There comes this strong motivation, strong urge to somehow be free. And this gives a tremendous motivating force to one's practice, to one's energy. In Zen, there's the story, somebody came to a Zen master and asked the master, how should one practice? So the Zen master took him down to a river and told him to just stand in the river and he pushed his head under water and he held it and the the guy was really struggling. Finally, at the last minute, the Zen master let him up. said, as badly as you wanted air, that's how you should practice. That can't be forced. You you can't force that and you can't pretend it and you can't set it up as an ideal and try to feel that way. It comes by itself as the practice deepens and that's the place in this urge for deliverance. That's the force that's generated. From that force, and and the practice remains the same through all of these stages, it's always simply to pay attention. 
just to be there, to be mindful. Not to cling, not to condemn, to allow the unfolding to happen. Out of this urge from deliverance comes, again, a very nice stage in practice. It's called the stage of equanimity. In this stage of equanimity, the mind reaches a profound equilibrium where there is no movement of mind, not even the slightest reaching out or pushing away. Perfect balance in which all things are arising and passing and the mind is still, the mind is even. It's at this stage of equanimity that all the factors of enlightenment start maturing. And all the ones I mentioned the other night of energy and rapture and calm and concentration and investigation, in this place of equanimity, all of them are in their final maturing stage. And again, people feel very comfortable in their bodies, very comfortable in their minds, can sit for long hours at a time. It's just this soft, soft flow of experience with tremendous clarity and stillness. And it's out of this place of equanimity, out of this place of equilibrium, that the mind, in a sudden, intuitive flash, opens to the unconditioned, to that which is beyond mind. And that moment, the mind going from a place of total equanimity, total balance and equilibrium, and just opening to what is beyond mind, the unmanifest. That moment has the power to uproot from the stream of consciousness the defilements of mind which keep us bound to samsara. And that is the ultimate purification. Because it's not just the pushing away of defilements. It's not just getting oneself in harmony through right action. But it's the actual uprooting from the mind of those forces, of those defilements or fetters which keep us bound, which keep us attached. This also happens progressively and in stages. But at that first moment the key defilement that's uprooted, which transforms the course of our lives from then on, is the attachment to the belief in self. Now, all along in our practice, it's as if we refer everything back to a sense of me. Everything gets back to my thought, my emotion, my feeling, my sensation, my experience, my fear, my equanimity. Everything gets back here. Mostly what people are doing is somehow seeing that this isn't very satisfactory and so trying to make this bigger. You know, make their consciousness more all-embracing. Like it real big, cosmic, my cosmic consciousness. Right? Still referring back to this sense of self. 
So no matter how big or how wide or how all-embracing we make it, if this is the relationship, it's not ultimately freeing. And what that moment of opening to the unconditioned does is take the mind from this perspective to that perspective. From that moment of going beyond mind, beyond consciousness, we go from this to this. And in this, everything is just what it is. In the seen, just the seen. In the heard, just the heard. In the sensed, just the sensed. In the thought, just the thought. That is, everything is just what it is. And there's no tendency to pull it back into an eye. This uprooting of the sense of self, the sense of I, comes from that moment of opening. Just in closing this talk, there's one thing which is exceedingly important to understand. Especially with reference to this talk. And that is, it's so easy to understand this and to project all of these experiences out in front of you. And if you're good yogis and you do your job, you'll reach out and get all of these kinds of happiness. That is a mistake. Because it's not out there. It's back in here. And so there's no reaching out for anything. It's opening from here. Not a grasping of anything outside of ourselves. You have to be very clear about that, or otherwise practice simply becomes spiritual ambition. Becomes an I wanting to get something, and that very wanting to get is totally counterproductive and defeating. That all of these kinds of happiness come from a settling back into ourselves, settling back and opening up. So it's always here now. That's why the practice is one of settling back and letting go, letting be, not a reaching out. The possibilities for understanding in our lives are tremendous, and there are so many levels and so such profoundly transforming insights and understanding that's possible. And that's what to me is so very inspiring about us all being here. And sometimes, just at night, I go out for a walk and I sort of look back on the hall in the center and the inspiration that comes to me of just feeling you know, more than a hundred of us here practicing in this way of opening to these levels of understanding. It's tremendously, tremendously inspiring very rare. It's not happening in too many places. 
Do you have any questions? Well, there might be at first, because there's definitely the, the sense of the unsatisfactoriness or dukkha of experience at that level. But in order for the practice to proceed, that aversion has to fall away and simply become mindful then of experience. So it's somewhat parallel, though opposite to what happens at that stage of Vipassana happiness. Right? That is really a happy state very happy, and the first tendency is to get attached. And that's where guidance is very helpful, just to reflect that back and let go of this too. In the same way, those first experiences of real suffering and fear, the first tendency could be aversion to it, and therefore guidance at that time is helpful too, to remind one, just okay, just be with it. In a, in a really soft and accepting way, and then it continues to unfold. Um, I have to wait at the exhausted, but um, for what you say, uh, I think you say a few words about the household, for instance, if I think of the stage of uh, insight of envy, envy. It's one thing to, for me to hear this and think of it in terms of the model of sitting. It's sort of in a sense easy, but we people who are living, and if I really practice with being in a happy state, I can see it reflecting to others being in an ending stage, which is actually deeper to me automatically think uh, I mean, it seems like it means something else in my apparent reality, in my relationship and people to the world. I'm not quite sure yet what you're asking. Mm-hmm. How, how? Yeah, I think you were sort of explaining, in a sense, easily. Right. Clearly. Just taking any of those phrases and relating a bit to not what I expect would be in each stage inside, but when I get up from my sitting at home, let's pretend I'm in a certain state or living in a corner. How does that? Is there anything written about it, told about how it looks? Looks. It looks the same way. Because, because there's really no difference. And so, if you're in that stage of great happiness, you'll see the world as being wonderful. Really wonderful and happy and everything's fine. And if you're at that stage where you're seeing the dissolution, the world's going to look pretty fearful. Right? But, it's not to think that you go through you, know, you stay locked into these different perspectives um, for long times. And they're just perspectives on practice, mostly coming at times of deeper concentration. 
where you can penetrate to those levels. Um, and it's just like our experience outside of, outside of this particular model. Some days you wake up and things look wonderful to you. Some days you wake up and it's just real gray. Right, so I, ha- I have one suggestion for you. If that should happen, keep practicing <laughs> so you move on. <laughs> In actuality, it's not, it's an interesting theoretical question. In actuality, it's not so much a situation that arises since for the most part, although not exclusively, one proceeds through these levels generally in times of intensive practice. Because it takes, as you see, a tremendous momentum and and focus and power of concentration which most people don't sustain at that level, you know, in the busyness of their lives. Although it's possible. But generally people proceed through this in times of intensive practice. So, I've never known that to be a problem for anybody. It depends what that experience is. I mean, I, I, from what you describe, I don't know. And from reading, I don't know. You know. I, I guess that, but can you tell from what you've read whether indeed it's true that, that, that all paths lead to the same place, or do these paths lead to different places? I can, I can give you an opinion, but I'd like to make it very clear that it's an opinion. In reading different kinds of spiritual texts and experiences, they don't all seem the same. They seem to... Some do. There are some which seem very similar, although expressed in different language, and some which seem quite different. And the difference, which is a very traditional difference in spiritual practice, there's a whole group of practices which could be categorized as awareness practices, where you're really developing that investigation and awareness of the nature of the process, whether it's in Tibetan or Zen or Vipassana. There are a lot of those awareness wisdom schools. The other, the other large path of practice is that of concentration development. And that more is the development through the chakra, developing certain energies 
and visualizations, where the mind gets very powerfully focused, very powerfully concentrated. These two paths don't end up in the same place, but they're not in conflict. Because if you understand what each is doing, and you develop the power of concentration, and then apply it to the development of wisdom, the wisdom comes very easily, because you have all that power of mind. But what can happen is because the the path of concentration leads to such power and bliss, just as in that stage of vipassana happiness, often people get attached to it. And so don't use it for liberation. One last question. This will be a nice way of closing. (laughs) There are four kinds of people's practice. There are people who proceed slowly with a great deal of pain. There are people who proceed slowly without much pain, pretty pleasant. There are people who proceed quickly with a great deal of pain, and there are people who proceed quickly with very little pain. What's the cause of these differences? The painfulness or lack of it or pleasure in our unfolding experience and path has to do with past karmic accumulations we experience the fruit of our past actions. If there are strong, very strong, unwholesome accumulations, so in our practice, in our sitting, there's a lot of pain. If there are very strong, wholesome accumulations of wholesome past actions, so then the fruit of that is that we experience pleasant feelings. The speed of insight, the rapidity of insight, again has to do with our backgrounds, the evolution of our minds. People who have cultivated in the past the spiritual faculties of mindfulness and concentration and wisdom and confidence and faith. So then it goes quickly because they've already accumulated that that parami, that force. People who haven't accumulated much So then the the path goes more slow because the practice is the accumulation and the development of it. What's very important to understand is that it doesn't make any difference. It makes no difference at all because once we have right understanding about the path of opening, the path of awakening, we proceed and how it unfolds for us is how it will unfold and it really doesn't matter to the direction which is important 
So it is to understand that there are differences. You know, we all come to this with very different backgrounds and that we're all working from the place that we are and that we're all going in the direction of awakening. One reminder, and since you expressed it in the way you did, if you can let go of any preconceptions of time, of progress, if the commitment is full in each moment, that's your job. Surrender everything else to the Dharma, to the truth. Because if you have this idea well, this is going to take four three-month retreats in order to reach that level of this or that. You just set yourself up for really sliding through. It's not helpful, and there's no knowing. It's a total image that you create. We don't know. None of us know. And so it's really incumbent upon us to work with as full a commitment as possible the Buddha said that it's possible to become fully enlightened, not only not only these little stages I talked about, you know, full enlightenment in seven days if the mindfulness is continuous. That's your challenge. <laughs> seven days, that's not much of you know, isn't it worth seven days of effort? <laughs> Just be mindful continuously. That's all. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.